0: Once again, there are a couple of mild swear words within the content of this podcast because it just made the jokes funnier. I mean, they're not even jokes, they're at best slightly witty lines. So (laughs) I don't know if the payoff is worth any potential offence caused, but I hope the balance is right. But as you'll discover with this one, balance is not necessarily something I'm the best person to judge. Anyway, I do my best. Welcome to indefinable magic. Lengthy spoken word offerings, sort of about Doctor Who, but not really. But yes, they are a bit. Written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. This week, sardonic, perhaps, but not cynical. I went to all sorts of things. I like football. I like a drink. I like Spain. That's a lovely line, isn't it? Love and Monsters' beautiful, neat little summation of Elton Pope from his own mouth. He's a funny little geek who wants to emphasise that he likes the things that everybody else does. And everybody likes a drink, don't they? And by a drink, Elton means alcohol. The first time that word is used in Doctor Who, alcohol, It is when the substance is rejected by our series lead. Twice, in fact. Oh, my dear man, I never touch alcohol, the comedy doctor of the gunfighters says when offered some of Doc Holliday's whiskey to dull the pain of his toothache and its subsequent extraction. And later, when offered a drink by intimidating gunslinger Seth Harper, the doctor says, unfortunately, I don't touch alcohol. So that's a pretty emphatic rejection. Two nays in one episode. Part 1 of, as I said, The Gunfighters, a story about which it might be too cruel to point out that someone involved in the making of it has clearly been drinking. Many of the decisions taken during the conception of the story might be more understandable if they were carried out under the influence of copious amounts of booze, and if Billy Clanton's accent is American, then it's clearly drawling under the influence. In the second episode, whilst at the last chance saloon, the doctor again turns down an offer of a free drink and instead asks for some milk, which of the many things on offer in the Wild West is among the most likely to be in a parlous state. Indeed, the novel's description of Charlie the Barman obtaining the lactose refreshment requested by our hero is one of the most unpleasantly evocative things ever written under the Doctor Who umbrella and certainly doesn't have me scurrying for the gold top. Now, before you write in, yes, there have been examples of alcohol being seen and talked about in the show before events in Tombstone, but I am beginning here with alcohol itself, ethanol, Ethyl alcohol, C2H2OH, the demon drink, its first mention as a substance, by name. Prior to the gunfighters, of course, we've seen quite a positive portrayal of the joys of a particular manifestation of booze, namely wine, aka Vitis vinifera, vino lambrusca, the vine of Bacchus, blue nun, in the Romans, in which Ian and Barbara spend much of part one rolling around lightly sozzled and it is rather joyous it makes getting sloshed look rather fun and if like me you harbour certain secret desires for the future of ian and barbara just a little saucy so hooray for booze except i mean it ends up with them getting whacked on the head and kidnapped but other than that what has the romans ever done for us in the putting us off alcohol stakes well quite a lot actually as later in that story, the Emperor Nero highlights the dangers of drinking whilst famous by proffering his poisoned cup to his taster, Tigellinus, who then, as a result, suffers one of the series' rare comedy deaths. It's very funny, unless, of course, you are Tigellinus. but that's comedy. Actually, that is also alcohol. Someone careering about ten sheets to the wind can be an hilarious thing to witness and not so much fun to be, and certainly not afterwards it works the other way round as well the drunk in the room might be under the impression that he or she is being hilarious and entertaining whilst everybody else in the vicinity is irritated embarrassed or hoping that someone has poisoned their chalice so full disclosure look i don't want this to become a are you okay hun facebook moment but i ought to at least be clear about where i am coming from I, to quote the doctor, never touch alcohol myself anyway anymore. Uh, It's a shame that the gunfighters and the next story weren't produced in a different order, because I am a member of a club that shares its initials with the production code of the savages, so could have made a really neat observation without having to blatantly invoke the initials AA. The first rule of AA is that, well... It's actually not the same as Fight Club. It's actually something to do with being sure you want to give up alcohol. But nonetheless, what happens at AA kind of stays there. It's as much a mystery as the the now-missing-the-savages with whom it shares its double-A, just in case I haven't laboured that connection nearly enough. That's the problem with alcoholics, though. We don't know when to stop. That's kind of the point. Now, I've often pondered if the mind that wants to know exactly which schoolchild in An Unearthly Child was played by exactly which extra, and what precisely was filmed on that day of that filming schedule for The Web Planet, and what the specific differences were between the different Emperor Dalek sets in Evil of the Daleks, is therefore hardwired not to allow me to just enjoy one drink and take or leave the next one. I once spent a day trying to work out exactly how and when a seven-second sequence in episode four of The Daleks was shot by watching it over and over again and comparing disparate bits of paperwork. Is it any wonder that once I start a bottle of whisky I'm not done until I get to the very bottom of it? But even on a more basic level, Doctor Who is an escape, isn't it? Doctor Who is what transports us from an often difficult reality into a fantasy where the good guys are funny where danger is exciting and where demons are always conquered. It faces the monsters and it stares them down. It's articulate and exciting and it makes facing danger thrilling. When you lose yourself in it, you're invincible as the world's problems recede into the distance. Well, I've lost count of the amount of times an email I'd been terrified of contemplating suddenly becomes manageable after a glass of wine, or when a difficult conversation moved much more smoothly when lubricated with a couple of G and T's. The problem with lubrication, though, is that too much of it makes you slip over. I was, am, what you'd call a functional alcoholic. Most people would have been gobsmacked to discover the extent of my problem. I wore it well, except for the times that I didn't. And I controlled it, except for the times that I couldn't. And as time went on, those very infrequent times became more frequent. And What has this got to do with Doctor Who? I hear you cry. Well, Doctor Who has often filled a gap in my life. It's what I've put on for comfort when I'm sad. If the cast of The Caves of Androzani got royalties every time it's been fired up by a tortured Haydock on the rough end of a breakup, then various ex-girlfriends could legitimately claim 10% of their equity residuals checks off them. Alcohol was less affordable and available to me as a kid and a teenager, so rather than get pissed, I'd find oblivion at the bottom of a Doctor Who fact conundrum or a book full of cast lists. And the heady thrill of discovering that Frank Butcher from EastEnders was an extra in the war machines made me woozy. And what about social lubrication? I'm not a massively robust person on social occasions. I find it hard to concentrate and am pretty self-conscious. Except if someone asks me about Doctor Who then I'm suddenly articulate and knowledgeable and, well, enthused as I just like talking about it and I I know where I am with it. However, if I'm in a situation where I'm not quite so comfortable and don't know anyone, a bit of booze, well, it can loosen the tongue, lower one's inhibitions and make that person you've only just met your best bloody mate ever. Oh, how many times have I sidled up to a stranger at a wedding and had a right old time at the bar over a few jars when, in civilian life, we'd have so little in common and I'd probably find a large number of their views insufferable. Well, I remember when I first met fellow Doctor Who fans. Suddenly... I could compare notes about James Bree and the Dalek voices in Day of the Daleks and whether Shada was actually any good or not, and my God, suddenly the conversation flowed and it didn't matter what any of these people did and thought the rest of the time. Doctor Who, like booze, switched off my social inhibitor. But I'd be a liar if I said that alcohol simply made social occasions more fun. In fact, much like Doctor Who has often been... I'm from the countryside in the middle of nowhere and was at university in the 1990s, neither of which were fertile grounds for fandom, alcohol is often something I have indulged on my own. Sometimes I'd look forward to a weekend when everyone went away so I could clear the decks, eat crap, watch my kind of telly and get smashed, revelling in my own mess and abjectness, indulging myself with self-abuse, I mean the gluttonous kind, quiet at the back, and feeling sorry for myself. And that's three selves in one sentence, which makes me seem... <clears throat> anyway, TV does that too. It puts us in touch with emotions we might otherwise not connect with. We're drawn to things which move us. And take New Doctor Who, or RTD+, which seems to have a terrific ability to open the emotional floodgates. Well... If you're someone who finds emotions difficult, a conduit for the tears, well, it's useful. It enables us to get in touch with emotions we might otherwise repress or not know how to access. It provides a sort of emotional M.O.T., bleeding the mental engine with tears. Now, I don't consider myself overly emotional, yet I've been known to weep at episodes of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And new Doctor Who found me doing that too. School reunion, the girl in the fireplace, army of ghosts. Oh, 2006 was the year of the lacrimose anorak in my house. And that's good. It's healthy that we watch things that move us. To tears, to laughter, to profound thought. But sadly, I know a great number of people who use alcohol for the same thing. Hence those weekends of locking myself down with a bottle of scotch and a session of injustice rumination in order to expunge all the resentments and fears and anger and sadness that I'd otherwise be keeping under lock and key, bottling up. There's a time and a place, of course, and that's why those sessions were consigned to when I was on my own, when everyone was away. But, to be honest, that's generally when I have a massive Doctor Who session too. It's also not something I I do in polite company. Drinking alcohol, though, is probably more socially acceptable than being dead into a TV programme designed initially for kids, but that says more about our society than it should. Now, look, it would be glib to say I've always managed to keep my Doctor Who life and my drinking career separate. I used to be aghast at the idea that fans would go to a convention and, as they cheerfully reported to me, spend more time in the bar than watching the panels. You what? I'd only been able to afford to go to the odd convention, but the idea that I would pass up the chance to watch William M's talking about Galaxy 4 for the sake of a vodka and lime with a load of blokes slagging off Pennant Roberts would seem to me a somewhat perverted one. Fast forward twenty years, And why the heck would I pass up the opportunity to catch up with an old mate I hadn't seen for a while and argue the toss about the relative merits of Cyberwoman and a Bucket of Sick just to watch some venerable thesp misremember something I'd already seen them interviewed about on a DVD anyway? Unfortunately, though, that meant suddenly my childhood escape was being cross-fertilised with my adult vice. Never mix business with pleasure, sure, but the whole point about a hobby is that you don't have to be pissed to enjoy it. But one of the curses of drinking is, much like plucking a Doctor Who DVD from the shelf, it quickly becomes a habit and you don't even realise that you're doing it. And the thing is, I enjoyed it. It was grown up. I had like-minded adult friends who I could drink with and wax lyrical about the show. Laugh about it, celebrate it, hey, even mock it. The wine and the conversation would flow. We didn't even need a convention as a backdrop. I've always been to the pub, but it was relatively late in my life that I could go to the pub and talk to people who knew what a famazi was. Heaven! And as I say, Doctor Who is not exactly an alcohol-cautious programme. In the Moonbase, alcohol is among the lists of things thrown together into a poly-cocktail which sees off the Cybermen. After things don't get pretty with Polly, the word alcohol is actually not mentioned in Doctor Who again until Dragonfire, in which it is mentioned twice, both times by Glitz, and then that is it for the word alcohol as far as classic Who is concerned. So we had nothing to drown our sorrows in when it was cancelled a couple of years later. But the first mention of anything boozy at all was very nearly in the first ever episode of Doctor Who, in an early draft, there's an enunciated suggestion that Barbara is half-cut when she follows Susan home. Add that to Ian's memory-wiping fags, and Anthony Coburn's Unearthly Child is an oasis of cigarettes and alcohol until David Whittaker comes along and drains it. So we have to wait until we get to the roof of the world with Marco Polo for the show's first bona fide mention of the demon drink when the dashing Venetian traveller claims to have seen Buddhist monks make cups of wine fly through the air and put them to Kublai Khan's lips. This bold assertion is apparently based on a true observation of the real Polo. But maybe he was the one who'd been at the wine. Well, unless sometime between then and now, the human race has lost the art of telekinesis. Well, maybe they didn't lose it. Maybe they just got hammered and forgot where they left it. Come the reign of terror, and wine is mentioned eight times over the course of six episodes, just to remind us, at all times, that we're in France. And in those days in Doctor Who, there was certainly no bonking allowed, so what else were they to do? Next time we're in France, in the massacre, wine gets seven mentions. So, when in France, well, do as an English 1960s TV perspective of France would have you do, which is drink a lot of wine, clearly. He'll fit right in. To be fair to those stories, though, the regulars do spend decent chunks of them in an inn, and it's rude to exchange exposition without at least buying something. When in Rome, however, you can do as the Romans does and mention wine a little. Tavius offers the doctor a tipple when he thinks our hero is musician Maximus Petallian, who he presumably thinks can play the harp even when drunk. Perhaps the harp plays itself. Most of the historical stories are actually awash with wine, which, considering their vintage, is appropriate. It gets offered and mentioned several times in the Smugglers and the Highlanders. The past is another country. They do things differently there, largely because they're pissed. As for our hero, the Doctor, well, Hartnell, as we've heard, doesn't drink. And Patrick Troughton, well, he doesn't get the opportunity, although... Look carefully at the scenes from the invasion shot on film after a between-takes Guinness-fuelled lunch and you can discern that he's pretty close to becoming the cosmic wino. Pertwee, on the other hand, well, he has a nose for it. He positively revels in the cheese and wine he gets in Day of the Daleks, coming across very much as a connoisseur. As the best gourmands do, he makes a great show of his enjoyment and knowledge of the finer things. And booze is a fine thing, isn't it? Oh, matured wine. Aged whiskey. Oh yes, a glorious, complex melange of taste and flavour that plays with your tongue and enriches your taste buds and dances across your senses and just so happens to make you soil your pants or punch your friend if it goes down the wrong way or at the wrong time. But hey, we have the correct glasses for it and everything. I love the word connoisseur. In my drinking days, it was a marvellous thing to hide behind. I can't be a drunk, I think. I make notes about the wine I drink. I have a wine book. You won't find those on any bloke in the gutter. I taste it. I order it from a club and I support independent winemakers. I do this properly. Yeah, I'm sure there are upwardly mobile smackheads who keep their syringes in a fancy case too. Yeah, I'm supporting an independent trader, they say. He's called Spider and he purveys his wares from an alleyway. But wine, oh, it is a thing of sophistication. Different places produce different wines of different hues. In fact, the thing about wine is, it has a bouquet. And all that wonderful ceremony makes for quite a sophisticated pastime. The problem is, when you get as ceremonious as a newt every night and wake up in a puddle of your own dribble on the sofa, well then the bouquet has a whiff of shame about it. And Doctor Who, being a children's programme, interestingly hasn't gone too deep and dirty into the effects or otherwise of booze. When it has been used, it's often as window dressing. The White Guardian, for example, sips creme de month or some such on his space veranda, maybe it's space creme de month, at the start of the Rebos operation in a display of casual but sophisticated power, whilst bad guy De Vries drinks and smokes in the Stones of Blood in order to underline just what a smooth cad he is. A rare, serious take on the problems with the stuff comes in Eric Saywood's Revelation of the Daleks. Saywood seems to love this tough guy stuff. People are marked for treachery with a flick knife or stabbed in the heart with a syringe. And Grigory, the cynical doctor come grave robbers cynical doctor credentials are underlined by the fact that he's a drinker. His weakness makes his friend Natasha worry about him, especially when the contents of his hip flask are forcibly poured down his throat. When he sobers up after the torture session at the hands of Tarkis and Lilt, ah, oh, Lilt, eh? See, soft drinks can be bad too. He does a comedy hiccup just to show the light side of alcoholism. Still, he does refer to the delirium tremens to show that this whole booze addiction thing hasn't been thrown in gratuitously. He uses Latin, for goodness sake. Revelation of the Daleks is trying to be grown up. It's the Doctor Who equivalent of overhearing a teenager on the bus saying, Yeah, I got like hammered last night, I must have had at least three cans of Fosters and I was like so sick afterwards. Fear Her, on the other hand, has a more subtle approach to the dark nature of his subject matter, alluding to Chloe Webber's dad, the unseen monster of the story, being someone who had a temper when he had had a drink. Indeed, much of what alcohol does that is bad happens behind closed doors. But alcohol isn't just evoked to make a commentary on its effects. Sometimes those effects are useful in terms of plot and character. Jackson has signed the pledge in enlightenment, which means he doesn't take a tot of rum like his crewmates, and so drunkenness can't be used to explain away the sights that he sees when he ascends to the deck. He went to bed on a boat and woke up on a spaceship, and there was no Facebook to help him piece together the night before and retrace his steps first thing in the morning. In The Enemy of the World, there's a cautionary tale about accepting drinks from dictators. Salamander gets his wine from Alaska, apparently, becoming a wine bore in order to distract Federer from the fact that this particular grape is laced with poison. Yes, Nicholas, it's a cheeky little number, hints of cyanide and a few pokey notes of strychnine. No, there's no need to spit it out. This isn't tasting. I keep going back to Day of the Daleks, though. Pertwee has a drink of whiskey whilst undertaking a fight scene. How cool is that? Oh, it's very cool. And I say this as a recovering alcoholic who has a vested interest in not being tempted back to my old ways. I've a vested interest in alcohol not being cool. But it's very cool. But does that kind of coolness encourage people to drink? Uh, I watch aspirational TV dramas now, in which beautiful people in unfeasibly large kitchens drink wine out of massive, bulbous glasses after a stressful day, and boy, it looks relieving. I can't deny it doesn't give me a pang. Stress-relieving drinks like that, well, they're even evoked in Doctor Who. Alcohol as a reward after a hard day. Well, that's a thing, isn't it? In Ian Chesterton's case, to be fair, it's not a hard day, but a hard couple of years in time and space because one of his desires for normality when he's talking about what he wants to do when he finally gets home is I want to sit in a pub and drink a pint of beer again. And I hope he did. The Brigadier, instead of doing namby-pamby Morris dancing after sorting out the mess at Devil's End, would rather have a pint, he says, at the end of The Demons, and very inviting it sounds. And does the Doctor's sophisticated demeanour in Day of the Daleks, accentuated by the addition of the hop and the grape, does that act as a temptation? Well, maybe. But one thing the group, named after the production code for the savages, tells you is that I could have a drink tomorrow, and blame it on Day of the Daleks. But I'd be lying to myself if I did. And that's a curious one, because I know a lot of people who are very concerned with how other people conduct themselves phraseologically to the extent of correcting their language during discourse and interactions. We have to be sensitive to people's gender, their race or their triggers, say these people, and rightly so. I think they come from a good place. And yet these very people are also happy to do what everybody else does, and that's sling around drink-related metaphors with gay abandon. Fancy meeting for a few beers? Catch up over a pint? Oh, I could do with a drink. They'd look at me like a madman if I said, "Uh, would you mind phrasing that without references to alcohol? But look, I'm not the type to be triggered, but I do note with amusement how alcohol references permeate the English language and, you know, they do serve as a reminder that I can now no longer do something I used to like doing, and that a great many people's social lives are very geared towards it. And you never forget. And yet it is everywhere in our society and it's hardwired into how we interact. Indeed, I remember once interviewing a former Doctor Who guest actor, very colourful character. I'm an alcoholic, so I can't drink anymore, he told me, but I don't really trust people who don't drink, so I've got something for you just in case. He'd sent his wife out to get something for me, but she didn't drink either, nor was she used to shopping in this country, as they were on a stopover from Thailand. So four cans of special brew were popped on the table for me. Now... I say in my drinking days that I drank but I also drank at a reasonable pace and I had an old-fashioned notion that what I drank shouldn't be able to also fuel a space shuttle. So it's fair to say I paced myself and turned down the offer to take the two surplus cans away post-interview. I also turned down the offer Of his wife's sister in order to write the fellow's autobiography and have to grudgingly admit that when you're sober those kinds of adventures don't seem to happen with quite the same frequency but hey i note with amusement that even an ex-drinker needed to get the measure of me by showing me liquid hospitality this by the way was at 11 o'clock in the morning and it just occurs to me this actor was actually a guest star from the first Doctor Who story to mention the word alcohol and so it has a kind of beautiful adult symmetry. Now I could write a whole podcast on Doctor Who actors I have got hammered with. I've certainly polished off a few with The Watcher and Colonel Archer whilst Carl Tyler slash Saladin slash Inspector Crossland slash Caldwell and I spent whole days knocking them back. Days I sadly can remember almost nothing of. He, however, emerged with his memory intact and no hangover because they don't make them like Bernard K. anymore. And there I go, offering my admiration for someone based on how much alcohol they could sink. I told you, this stuff is hardwired. <laughs> but listen, I'm telling stories of ethanol fueled derring-do, and that, well, that is part of the appeal, isn't it? Drink-fuelled socials, 40% proof bonhomie, enhanced conviviality. I'd be lying if I said I didn't miss them. I'm four years sober this December, which sometimes seems like an age and sometimes seems no time at all. And yet, rather like swearing, even though I was a committed dweller in the cups, I was always a bit dubious when I saw my hero doing it. I remember being somewhat askance during The Girl in the Fireplace, when the Doctor staggered in, having invented the banana daiquiri. Like swearing and sex, it seemed to me that Doctor Who, because it couldn't depict the things that other dramas often use as punctuation, was more imaginative as a result. I also thought maybe it demeaned our hero to be drunk. There's nothing worse, actually, than being the only sober person in the room. For two reasons. One, because drunk people are boring. Sorry, you are. And two, because you know you've been those drunk people yourself and you get the shocking realisation that when you thought you were being the most fascinating and hilarious person in the room, you were actually being an insufferable blowhard. That said, I used to wake up in the morning with sweats. a panic because my consciousness was a few minutes ahead of my memory and so there were holes that could have been filled with, well, anything. Unlike missing episodes, where invariably one creates miraculous wonder out of what we don't have, I would fill the inky abysses in my memory banks with the most apocalyptic imaginings until I usually pieced it all together, and nine times out of ten I hadn't been as much of an ass as I feared. Reassuring, except it does mean that one in every ten times I was an ass in a situation I needn't have been an ass in at all. But the doctor, of course, is being an ass in The Girl in the Fireplace for a reason The drunkenness is an act It's a very Doctor Who thing to do He disarms his enemies by making them underestimate him Sometimes, in The Dominators Say he does so by appearing stupider than he actually is In The Girl in the Fireplace he does it by appearing drunker than he actually is Hot on the heels of the Doctor kissing someone though the drinking Doctor made me a little edgy was this Moffat fella slaying all the sacred cows and then getting drunk afterwards to celebrate. It certainly felt like my buttons were being pressed. Or does alcohol, even when drunk by someone else, just make you paranoid? Of course, when drink has appeared in Doctor Who, it often has an unpleasant side effect. One could read this, if one wanted to, as a subliminal warning to kids, but it is more likely that it's just a useful storytelling device. In both The Androids of Tara and The Brain of Morbius, for example, the Doctor accepts hospitality in plonk form, only to find it has been drugged. The new series found River Song dropping an explosive into Dorium's wine, a witty and escalated version of the old drugging routine, but I personally am much happier with the Matt Smith Doctor's reaction to the stuff. His spitting out of the wine in The Lodger and his disappointment in The Impossible Astronaut that it doesn't taste more like the gums – and no one says gums better than Matt Smith, and that's a fact – is lovely and alien and childlike and, crucially, doesn't do what many dramas do nowadays – or perhaps I say nowadays simply because I'm more conscious of it, and subliminally glorify wine as it's drunk in those ludicrously outsized glasses in pornographically aspirational houses by high-flying lawyers who never have a hangover and look terribly neat at work the next day, even though they've woken up in their work clothes and not had a shower. And so probably smell. And as someone who's occasionally smelt like a brewery of a morning even after a fastidious ablution, let me tell you, People notice. That said, such is the stigma surrounding alcoholism, I feel that at this point I should point out that I never, ever, even at my worst, let booze affect my work. Now, maybe the odd gig. As a stand-up, I had one too many, but comedy back in the day seemed to lend itself to consumption on the job. We'd often go on stage with a pint or a glass of wine in our hands. And peers of mine have put far more up their noses pre-gig than I ever put down my throat before emerging into the footlights. And I've certainly never done that. Nor have I turned up to a play or a TV studio under the influence, or indeed with any passing my lips. So, despite what I'd protest when friends and loved ones asked me to cut down on alcohol, I could actually resist when I wanted to. Oh yeah, and that's the selfishness at the heart of it. I would bat off people who cared about me, asking me to quit because of the effect that it was having on them and on me. Stop nagging, leave me alone, I'm fine, it's nothing to do with you. And do you know what, actually I find it really hard. But then, get a whiff of a telly, or a run of a play, and suddenly, self-denial? Yay, bring it on, I can do that. But I only seem to want to do it if I was losing myself in something else, work. So I was swapping one kind of escape for another. But besides work and booze, the only thing that transports me from the world of bills and ennui and my own shortcomings is Doctor Who. I can get lost in it enthused by it, frustrated by it, intrigued by it, and drink in (laughs) loads of heady facts and ideas and suppositions. But unlike post-bender amnesia, piecing together the missing bits of Doctor Who is exciting and fun, and not accompanied by cold sweats of embarrassment or mounting dread. I mean, I'll be upset if the savages has been wiped forever, but not as upset of that memory of being unnecessarily rude to that person or a bit of a dick in front of that one. Unlike 16mm film prints, those pictures don't decay over time and can be replayed again and again, whether I want to or not. It's a slippery slope, though. Can you be too much of a Doctor Who fan? I don't know. I know someone who buys three of every toy and hides one set in his attic so that his wife doesn't know it is there. Now that's a compulsion, isn't it? and hiding those second spares away, lying to a loved one, well, that's a boozer's trick. You don't tell yourself when you do it. You say you're doing it just to get her off your back. But when you're sequestering a bottle of Jameson's behind your key-to-time DVD box set, it's time to admit that you have a problem. At least Toys in the Attic guy has something to show for his deceit, even if it's only a spare squishy adipose or destroyed Cassandra. Ah yes, I mentioned Jameson's. Now it's not my favourite whisky. It was when I was younger, but my palate developed a taste for complex and expensive ones as I got older. Connoisseur, you see. I'd start aiming for the whisky equivalent of steel books, packaged better and with extra little grace notes that came with a hefty price tag, which convince you of the value of what you were purchasing. Do you know... Apart from Doc Holliday's, and that's American, so it's not really whiskey, sorry guys. Whiskey is never mentioned by name in the whole of the classic series outside of a dentist's in tombstone. You see drinks that could be it, but there's never a name check. Not even as part of the phonetic alphabet used by Unit or Policeman. It's not mentioned that much in New Who either, a bit. Rise of the Cybermen and Army of Ghosts raise the spectre, as does Turn Left. But Clara does make up for that by describing whiskey as the 11th most disgusting thing ever invented in Hyde an appropriate title seeing as that's what I ended up doing with mine at around the time that this was on and I get that Clara's dislike Hard liquor is a bit like Doctor Who I understand why other people might not enjoy it but its various constituent parts are designed to tickle my taste buds in exactly the right way Television has changed, of course. Clara getting back home and cracking open a bottle of wine after a long day is a perfectly natural sight in early 21st century television and would have been a bit out of place in classic Who. I mean, sure, there are exceptions. Some I've already mentioned and some, like the Green Death, say, are awash with it. Stevens and the Brigadier share a civilised glass, effectively illustrating that this week's baddie is part of the establishment and the Brigadier won't be able to wave his rank at him. This will be a much more civilised battle. The Doctor gets in on the act, enjoying wine at the nut touch. but again, there's a bit of character stuff here. He can't identify the vintage, well, because this wine is homemade. Oh yeah, viewers, the hippies make the wine, but not only that... It's nice. The good life is not a puritanical one. And for all their tambourine banging, these hippies are pretty handy. And then, of course, at the very end of the story, the doctor downs his champagne and heads off into the sunset as he says goodbye to Joe Grant. And the only liquid we're knocking back at home has been produced by our tear ducts. Despite the green deaths and various other present-day depictions of the joys of demisex, it's fair to say that in the Hoodiverse it's the people from the past who drink the most, certainly more so than in the future. It's almost like we know something that they don't, and to be fair, everyone in the story set long ago must be dead, so don't go telling me drink isn't bad for you. The Time Warrior is a ripe and colourful story, as rosy-cheeked as the wine its protagonists drink and spill. In it, The Middle Ages is a time where a flagon of ale or a goblet of wine is an excellent prop. It's like punctuation. For Iron Gron, there's not a booze vessel that goes unsmashed onto a tabletop to emphasise a point. And later, of course, the vast alcohol consumption of him and his band of vagabonds is used to the Doctor's advantage, as they are all drugged just in time for the Doctor to defeat the Sontaran Lynx. Presumably, Bloodaxe will have woken up with the mother-of-all hangovers and no idea why his castle has been destroyed. What a night that must have been. As we've heard, historical stories definitely have more wine in them than futuristic ones. So bravo, then, to the President of Earth in Frontier in Space for keeping the vineyards flowing in the space year whatever. But despite being dressed in a ball gown, she's a sober customer. And actually, we don't see drunkenness itself very often in Doctor Who at all. Now, as I mentioned, there's nothing worse than watching someone else get soused, so maybe that's why. It's also remarkably hard to act well. In fact, I've known more drunk actors carrying off acting sober than I have sober actors pulling off acting drunk. The Keeper of Traken, however, adds to its general verisimilitude by having Tremus slightly tipsy on his wedding night, but not making a big deal of it. Still... He went to bed with a cassia and woke up with a melka, But we've all done that, haven't we? Colony and Space, on the other hand, is a rather greyer, clayier affair, and so it's credit to director Michael Bryant and his actors Bernard Kaye, Tony Kaunter and Maurice Perry that they decide to play a couple of scenes in episode four, after the adjudicator's decision to award the planet Uxarius to evil miners IMC, as if it's a celebratory post-judgment drink. They're knocking back the space ale and slightly slurring their words in the first scene, and in the second Dent is snoozing when his buzzer sounds and Morgan and Caldwell woos about. For a story which is mostly lots of middle-aged men, some with moustaches and some without, yelling at each other, it's a nice piece of character work that adds some much needed variety to a script that certainly needs a pick-me-up now and again. Dent's hungover state makes a bit more sense of him not quite realizing that Winton, who is speaking to him on the radio, is not the adjudicator he is pretending to be, and Morris Perry as Dent holds his head in his hands without overplaying it. Its drinking culture played subtly and sensibly for no other reason than to add a little texture to the scenes and make the episode more interesting. Well done, everybody. Have a drink on me. In fact, all three of those actors have. As mentioned, I enjoyed many a drink with Bernard Kay, who seemed immune to the stuff. Maurice Perry, on the other hand, was a much more cautious imbiber, which perhaps explains why he lived to be 96. But the reason those actors and the director could shoehorn drink consumption into that scene is because alcohol is often brandished to add a bit of fizz to a celebratory affair. It heightens the happiness that has already started to course through our systems. And it's interesting, isn't it, that if Doctor Who were to show the dark side of alcohol, that, that would be deemed too adult, yet showing the upside, its celebratory context, well, that's perfectly normal. Of course, drunken escapades can be legendary, can't they? Booze is often the source or setting for a good comedy. Legendary in both senses of the word, The mythmakers, features Menelaus as one of its funniest characters. No mean feat in a story of wall-to-wall wit, because he largely spends his time sitting around getting sozzled. One of the reasons I drink, he tells Agamemnon, who is berating him for his drunken ways, especially as he's his brother, is to forget that I'm your brother. Alcohol is also used as a did I really see that comedy prop, or as an explanation of incredulity at someone's claims to have seen something out of the ordinary, something that, of course, happens a lot in Doctor Who, a show that by its very nature specialises in the out of the ordinary. And indeed, the Brigadier thinks it more likely that Captain Yates has been drinking in the Time Monster because he's claimed to have seen someone in fancy dress, which considering their day-to-day business involves monsters and time travel is, I'd say, a pretty unreasonable accusation from the commanding officer. All Yates was claiming to have witnessed was, checks notes, a man in armour, and the brigadier's going, nah, you must be drunk. I mean, come on, Lethbridge Stewart, have you seen the axons? But look, drink is a great social lubricant, and even the oil to move the cogs of romance. Janos, the lovely guard, offers to take Astrid out for wine in The Enemy of the World. Billy Shipton asks Sally Sparrow out for a drink in Blink. Oh, hang on, whatever you do, don't drink, drink and you're dead. And Captain Jack pops a bottle of champagne on top of an invisible spaceship in front of Big Ben during the Blitz, which is, frankly, just showing off. Then there's PC Quick sharing a somewhat outside-of-protocol tipple with Mrs Nellie Gusset – yes, that's an actual name given to a character – in The Talons of Weng chiang Lord Palmedale, demanding brandy to stave off the cold in horror of Fang Rock, but being given soup instead, much to his annoyance, and Duggan smashing a bottle of wine to hilarious effect in City of Death, all of which illustrate the upsides of booze and its multifaceted nature and its various uses in terms of plot, comedy and character when telling the stories of Doctor Who. But even when I was a drinker, I think I preferred my doctor to be the never touch alcohol Hartnell to the reputed drinking buddy of King Henry XII in The Beast Below. But I'm no Puritan. I don't think a child-friendly drama should hide the fact that alcohol exists. Fenner, offering everyone a drink in The Power of Kroll, helps to remind us that these shouty men on the planet of the Green Squid People are like the shouty men we see in boardrooms on Earth. Vincent van Gogh, selling his amazing works of art for the price of a drink in Vincent and the Doctor, is as abject and sad a depiction of his state of mind as anything in that whole wonderfully tragic depiction of a troubled mind. And if anything, isn't Vincent van Gogh, a man of extremes, of heightened emotion and emotional blackness, the perfect personification of drink, which paints our world in bright colours, but then also blots it out with inky darkness. But Vincent was an extreme case, of course. For most people, alcohol is not a problem, and that is fair enough. I don't think that Doctor Who should stop doing something because of the peculiarities of my life and my shortcomings and sensitivities. And if I watch Pertwee supping his wine like a pro, and then wretch as Captain Yates necks his like a bloomin' pleb, and get that whiff of a taste, that tingle of a sensation much remembered and enjoyed, if I get piqued by that... That, that bouquet, well, then I have things I can do. If I'm feeling like I need a bit of a mental M.O.T., I go to that place that shares its initials with the production code of the savages. And I go to it for different things. Sometimes there's that bloke who tells the same stories, with the same jokes, with the same intonation, every single time. Sometimes... I share my own burdens or shortcomings, just saying them out loud providing some kind of catharsis. And sometimes I just have a Viscount biscuit because there's a Sunday meeting where someone always brings those and I didn't think they even made them anymore. So sometimes it's just for a rush of nostalgia. So yeah, it's a bit like Doctor Who. But like Doctor Who, when I listen to the stories at AA, many of which I know like the back of my hand, they unlock childhood memories which help me to take stock of my life, or they cause me to remember moments of great comfort, or to assess and get over occasions of great stress. Confronting terrible things from the past, but then realising that you got through them and are still here. That's why we use things to provoke our memories. And because Doctor Who is inextricably linked with when we first watched it, where we were when we saw those monsters rising from the sea or that new doctor or the death of that character. Those memories are brain anchors for me as much as any formative experiences. In fact, formative experiences are linked by whatever was going on at the time in Doctor Who. Mike Smith in Remembrance of the Daleks was buried the same week as my granddad. I got to stay at home for half a week of an interminable school time away from the family nest and so I saw Terminus Part 3 Journey to the Centre of the TARDIS That was the last story I watched in my London flat before another seismic personal upheaval that my love for Doctor Who was pretty much the only thing to get me through and a really good friend as well a friend made as a result of my love of Doctor Who as it happens and actually I've never given up on Doctor Who I've never needed to it's never had a negative effect on me Now, alcohol, well, I had tried to shake that on and off for many years before this current series of Sober Toby. But comparatively, late in life, I discovered it was possible to get together with a group of like-minded people, all of us very different, yet with this common bond, sharing stories and experiences very much linked in with our childhood, in order to try and make this world of ours slightly easier to negotiate. To outsiders, it probably seems a bit sad, and you know... Not everyone likes each other, but we share things in common. Oh, I'm talking about AA there, not Doctor Who fandom, but, um, well, I think you can tell what I'm doing. But actually, even though it's been useful, AA doesn't really offer me anything that Doctor Who doesn't. And I think I get just as much reassurance and perspective when I'm throwing myself into this great pool of comfort that is my favourite TV show. Wrapped up as it is in my hopes and dreams and memories. But the big lesson I did learn from the Savages' Savages production code place is that there's no magic solution. Yeah, there are people and biscuits and steps, not the band, but the only thing that can really keep me off the booze is me. And it hasn't suddenly made everything good, being sober. I think I had images of sprinting out of bed, muscles elastic and brain fog cleared, the world a clean-smelling, springy place of correct decisions and cheerful outcomes. But it's not. Life doesn't change. It's how you deal with it that does. Oh, and, oh, if only I hadn't had a drink last night, I wouldn't have come across as such a twat. Well, guess what? That's not the booze. Sometimes, you're just a twat. But no. All the things I blamed on drink, achy muscles, fading memory, Dark moods. That wasn't booze. That was life. We're all travelling in time and only in one direction. But that takes us back to Elton Pope. And so, of course, inevitably, to Doctor Who. The world is full of love and monsters, and I have had and continue to have my battles with both. But arming myself with alcohol was perhaps not the best plan of attack. And yes, without the booze and with Doctor Who, the world is dark and the world is mad but it is also so much better Thank you very much for listening to sardonic perhaps but not cynical this week's episode of indefinable magic which was as usual written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. The podcast artwork is by Dylan Patterson, and the music for Indefinable Magic has been specially composed by Dominic Glynn. Extremely grateful to the patrons who make these podcasts possible and ensure that they remain ad-free. Those patrons include David Tranier, Risto Sarillo, Barry Platt, Adam Parker, Nathan Martin, Ian K. McLachlan, Darren Mackay, Joe Llewellyn, Ian Key, Siobon Galichon, Jason Gorman, Paul Dunn, Chris Dunford Kelk, John Deere, Rob Dawson, Peter Crocker, Richard Chalk, Paul Cook, Paul Caddington. Jenny at Blue box 99 David and David, you know who you are, Nick Tedston, Richard Straw, Christopher Meredith, Rob Leonard, Ronald Hayden, Peter Harness, Peter Burns, Stephen Moffat, Ruben Herfindahl, Andrew Nixon, Jet Sear, Murray Robertson, Graham Knott and Shanty Day. Thanks to them and to everybody and I am sincerely grateful. <laughs> Ooh, I hope that didn't sound like a lecture. I felt it did a little bit towards the end. It was just a poster or a confessional. Both of those things make me go bleak. Anyway, um, it is what it is. Um, it is what it is. And if you like it and uh, want more of it, well, uh, you can support these podcasts uh, by becoming a patron, which means your name would be read out sometimes as well at the frequency depending on which tier you join by. If you go to patreon.com forward slash Toby tobyhaydoke for as little as three pounds a month and i think you get uh, 12 releases per month so it's 25p per podcast uh (laughs) you uh can get advanced releases bonus material and exclusive material Uh, and as i say you help to keep these advert free Uh, i've resisted uh, uh the temptation to uh you know dilute the brilliance with the hawking of wares uh, so uh, yeah so anyway um, that's that's one of the things that being a patron does so if you want to go there patreon.com forward slash toby that would be very very helpful um uh, but committing to a monthly thing i know is hard especially as i mean Petrol now costs the same as a house, so um, if you sell your house, perhaps you could go to kofi.com and uh just bung in the odd donation, you know, whenever whenever you've got a few quid flying about. Uh, kofi.com forward slash Toby haydoke But as I say, I think we've all got to pull together in these times of hardship, and if all you can do is indulge me by listening, then that is plenty, and I'm very grateful. But what you can do whilst you're listening is go onto iTunes or wherever you get to your podcasts and give these a score of five stars. The five stars really helps to set these uh, apart from the crowd. And it is a big crowd of Doctor Who podcasts, many of which are excellent uh there's so many good ones out there but so it really really helps uh just to get people aware of this one uh because i'd like people to listen to it it would be nice so five stars and perhaps a few lines of review that uh, as i say that just that just really helps uh, anybody who's scanning the internet for things that they think they might like and if they haven't come across these they won't know they like them they need you to tell them and you can do that on social media as well you can tie in the twitter account which is at Heydok podcasts or me at toby Heydok. uh None of those things cost you anything except a little bit of your time. And I'd be very, very grateful. I'm also a comedian and I do Excess Malarkey Comedy Club in Manchester at 8pm every Tuesday. Uh, MCing a night that has uh, at least four comedians from the national comedy circuit. And we also do once a month on twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey. Uh, Which is me with international comedians Because geography is no barrier It's free at the point of entry uh, Although we do accept donations But that's at twitch.tv Forward slash excess malarkey Yeah, got a bit preachy Sorry about that Did it get a bit preachy? No, I don't know There's some good jokes in it, I think Um uh, and uh, an important subject to talk about, but uh, I hope I'm never too serious, because I think that's the problem with the world today, is, I mean, it's a very serious world, are the very serious things going on, but I think, uh, in terms of how we deal with it, um, I think we need to have a good sense of humour, like the Doctor does, about all the all the dark and terrible things, because, uh, because that's the best counter to them, isn't it? Um, and look, I don't, I'm not preaching. I don't think everyone should be sober. I just should be. Uh, and I often don't want to be. I just should be. <laughs> and I hope that came across. If it didn't, I, I failed. But unfortunately, I can't drown my sorrows. So just don't tell me. No, you can not tell me. Uh, I always, um, I, I'm always respectful of feedback if it's couched nicely. Um, anyway, I'm going to go and have a cup of tea now because that's as exciting as my life gets. Chin chin.